and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred, reporting from picturesque Alfred, Maine. The leaves are still hanging on to their gold and amber colors, but as a chill gets into the wind and fog and mist become our friends, we are delighting in the dark craft of audio drama horror. Um, and as a Mainer myself, I must say I relish the tales of terror that originate from old New England. Something is definitely in the water up here. We've got Stephen King, of course, um, who all of us owe a bow down to the Grandmaster H.P. Lovecraft. And H.P. Lovecraft, his work is our feature this week, brought to us by our friends at 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Um, yeah, so, so Lovecraft's works make great audio adaptations. And there's plenty of material around the interwebs. Um, of different types of uh, Lovecraft stories, but nothing quite like what we'll hear today, the work of audio mistress Julie Hoverson and her series 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Um, Dow celebrating three years um, of production work. She debuted in October of 2008. Uh, I think we featured one of her first productions, Making Book, in the interim. She's produced uh, dozens, 50, 60 hours, I think, of, of material in the meantime um, and attracted fans from all over the world. So we've got um, new feature by her the dunwick horror it's a four-part audio horror uh masterpiece uh we got four 30-minute episodes we'll have the first one for you today and the others at 19 nocturne boulevard.net um two of them have been released as of the time i'm recording this the third probably by the time you hear this and the fourth uh, another week from today just in a moment we'll have julie but uh first uh first we have sad news uh, norman corwin passed this week uh, norman corwin um at, at 101 uh, was one of the real uh, it was called the Poet Laureate of Radio. It was one of the, the grand masters, um, produced such works as On a Note of Triumph, and we hold these truths, uh, true true poet and sound, and did things, and lived in an era that uh, we'll never quite see again. And at 101 years of age, that's, that's, that's a mighty fine run. Thank you, Norman Corwin, for everything you've done for audio. Uh, we will truly miss you. Um, and his influence does live on today. Um, the National Audio Theater Festivals has presented its second uh, Norman Corwin Award this year to ZBS Foundation. I believe Norman Corwin himself uh, won it the first year, was was so honored at a, at a um, ceremony out in Los Angeles. So don't think anyone could honor him quite like uh, his own words here from a note of triumph. Lord God of trajectory and blast, whose terrible sword has laid open the serpent so it withers in the sun for the just sea. Sheathe now the swift avenging blade with the names of nations writ on it, and assist in the preparation of the plowshare. Lord God of fresh bread and tranquil mornings, who walks in the circuit of heaven among the worthy, deliver notice to the fallen young men the tokens of orange juice and a whole egg appear now before the hungry children. That night again falls cooling on the earth as quietly as when it leaves your hand. That freedom has withstood the tyrant like a Malta in a hostile sea. And that the soul of man is surely a Sevastopol which goes down hard and leaps from ruin quickly. Lord God of the top coat and the living wage, who has furred the fox against the time of winter and stored provender of bees in summer's brightest places, do bring sweet influences to bear upon the assembly line 
except the smoke of the mill town among the accredited clouds of the sky. Fend from the wind with a house and a hedge him whom you made in your image and permit him to pick of the tree and the flock that he may eat today without fear of tomorrow and clothe himself with dignity in December. Lord God of test tube and blueprint who jointed molecules of dust and shook them till their name was Adam, who taught worms and stars how they could live together, appear now among the parliaments of conquerors and give instruction to their schemes. Measure out new liberties, so none shall suffer for his father's color or the credo of his choice. Post proofs that brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. Sit at the treaty table and convoy the hopes of little peoples through expected straits and press into the final seal a sign that peace will come for longer than posterities can see ahead that man unto his fellow man shall be a friend forever. Uh, rest in peace, Norman. Um, so, audio goes on. Uh, if, I, I suspect that Norman Corman's passing will be a theme this weekend. Um, it's still time for you to get in a car or plane and head out to uh, New Jersey to see the Friends of Old Time Radio Convention. Um, I'm going to let them see it. This is, I guess, their farewell tour. Um, it's been a great convention. Um, they do uh, shows every year. Um, Craig Wickman, who is of the Quicksilver Radio Theater, does some uh, really nice work. And uh, we also have Patience Weiland, um, another one of uh, my, my comrades in audio, uh, will be out there. Here, here's a little piece I encourage you to come out this weekend. Did you know that this weekend will mark the final convention for Friends of Old Time Radio held at the Ramada Plaza in Newark, New Jersey? It's a snap to reach by air, train, or car. If you love audio drama, and especially if you love old-time radio, you don't want to miss this, the final convention. Your favorite old-time radio, audio drama, and TV performers and crew will come together for this celebration, along with several musical guests. Shouldn't you be there, too? Visit FOTR.net for more information. FOTR.net. All right. uh, Some more business. One more promo. Um, Can't help but do a bit more shameless self-promotion. We've got um, another promo this week for our upcoming Halloween show on TranscontinentalTerror.com, FinalRune.com, and OralStage.com. I'm also probably going to make a special Radio Drama Revival Halloween Edition this year podcast um, between next week's show and the following November show. Uh, This is for our new series in tandem with 1918 producers, Oral Stage producers, um, Intensive Care. This Halloween. Oh, you may. Oh, we're so glad we thought we lost you. A man wakes in the hospital, and he may never leave again. He won't let you live here alive. (laughs) Let's get you back to your room. Final Room Productions and Oral Stage Studios present Intensive Care by James Comtois. Guess they haven't told you why you're here. (laughs) Why you're here to suffer. Tune in Monday, October 31st at transcontinentalterror.com, vinylrune.com, and oralstage.com, and prepare for the worst. To get out of here, you need to go through the basement. Oh, God, Alex! The hospital will never be the same again. 
All right. One more piece. And then we're getting Julie. Uh, Captain Radio is back for review of The Mask of Inanna, uh, season three. Um, and he's catching us up with what's happened in the intervening seasons and uh, this new work. So enjoy. Greetings, Audionauts. Captain Radio here with a Halloween season review of Alicia Gorenson's The Black Velvet Ribbon from the Hub of the Universe series, The Mask of Inanna, made possible by Rode Microphones. Passionate, unique audio transforms our world. You start with Rode. Visit rodemic.com. That's R-O-D-E-M-I-C.com. The Mask of Inanna. The Black Velvet Ribbon markedly alludes to series creator Neil Marsh's claimed font of inspiration, that is, Bill Cosby's satirical horror sketch, Chicken Heart. Expect the unexpected as peevish watchdog entry lights remain no more inert than the suspiciously nippy chicken corpse on an in-flight entree. If it's not outrageous anomalies, it's bewildering banter, as Len Allen, voiced by Andrew LeBron, and his whiz-kid sidekick, Scotty Harper, voiced by Nellie Farrington, attempt to bar for their sanity and their lives with Alan's former traitorous peer, Bob Stroud. There's nothing to save me except your prayer, and that doesn't leave much space for anything after you throw a resurrection in there. What about force fields? Mirror illusions? Miss, you know how much power it takes to make something physically manifest. If it was that easy, you would have done it already. Let's say we come up with something that works. Would you be able to put it in the prayer for us? Sure, but you'd be dead by then. Me too. It takes weeks for all this tedious rhythm and linguistics nonsense. I don't even understand it all. Perhaps neither will the listener without first ear-browsing episode one. The extremely short take here is that middle-aged Len and Bob once collaborated on an old AM network radio horror show, After Dark, before Bob clandestinely ensconced the unproduced scripts to forge a competing program. Decades later, Dying Len is offered deliverance if he finishes producing the scripts involving strange subliminal prayers in service, weirdly enough, to the allegedly real Sumerian prime goddess Inanna. Each episode of Inanna features one of these completed Golden Age-style horror tales, and they can get pretty rambunctious. And the present-day Inanna storyline can go wanton as well, as here, cornered in a rural redneck food and liquor emporium by winged feline Nephilim intent on converting all present into zombie puppets, Len falls severely off the wagon in his efforts to save Scotty and himself. I still have your feathers! Well soon. You don't fly too well when you're wet! You won't kill me! You won't cut me any worse! Even if I grab you! You need to take a little drink first. Shivered up this Halloween season with the Black Velvet Ribbon, the eighth episode of The Mask of Inanna, performed by series creator Neil Marsh's post-Meridian Players, and available at www.themaskofinanna.com. Inanna is spelled I-N-A-N-N-A. Until next time, Audionauts, this is Captain Radio, signing off. Okay, thank you, Captain Radio, CaptainRadio.com. Um, you know the drill. If you want to submit your show for us, just go to RadioDramaRevival.com, hit the submit link, and stay tuned. Now we've got, at last, for you, part one of four of The Dunwick Horror by H.P. Lovecraft, adapted by Julie Hoverson. Nice job, Julie. This is, this is fantastic. Enjoy.
Part one of four. Nor is it to be thought that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. Is Professor Armitage here? Shh. Oh, sorry, Miss Ward. He just made it sound like it was urgent. He's in the Wexler Annex conference room, Professor Rice. You can take this to him. Is he doing well? He looks fragile. Background there. Last door on the left. You tell him if he needs anything. Absolutely. Oh, it's you. Armitage? You look dreadful. I heard you've been ill since... Let's not go into that with the door open. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, your box? Just set it down. We'll go into that when Morgan gets here. Come in, Morgan. Good God, Armitage, you look... Shut the door. Sit. You said it was urgent. First, I must ask both of you for an assurance that whether you choose to stay or leave, nothing I say here today will pass beyond this room. What? Well, of course, whatever you want. You know you can trust me, Henry. After that night, I... I... I felt you were the only ones I could bring into this. After that night, we're already in this. Whatever that thing was... Are we in danger of being overheard? We can speak freely. I chose this room for its isolation. I need to tell you a story. About that night? You only saw a thing. I met that person twice before. Twice? You only mentioned... I only recalled the details of the first meeting very recently. A news article. One of many that made it into that box you so kindly brought along. Jogged an odd sliver of memory in this old brain. Several years ago, I... I... Yes? I... I will get back to that. Of more import is the recent encounter. Wilbur Waitley. <laughs> you should have seen the look on Miss Ward's face when that filthy, goatish monstrosity of a man ducked under the lintel of her sacred library and requested a very special book. The what? The Necronomicon. I read doubt is to be found in your special books collection. I can't just let you in. That collection is restricted. Someone would have to escort you. I can read it myself. That is not the point. If you want to schedule a viewing, I can put you on the list. Is there a problem, Miss Ward? No, Professor. Nothing to worry yourself about. I've come for to see the Necronomicon. I told him he would have to make an appointment. I have a bit of free time. Why don't I just take him? I knew you would query me about my motives. He was an interesting type. Not the person you might expect to see in a library to begin with. And I'd heard him declare he could read the book. I gave in to curiosity, pure and simple. Perhaps also a touch of cruel humor. Even I am not immune from the odd, I told you so. Didn't anyone notice there was something very 
wrong with him? You did say something about ducking under doors. You only saw him an extremist. To us, then, he was simply a very tall, ugly man in a rather bulky, cheap suit who looked and smelled like he'd walked all the way from a farmyard. Tall? Ha! <laughs> Those doors are nearly eight feet. I had to help move a shelf through there once. I decided to test him. We were in the reading room, and I seated him at the table. So, you were looking for the English version of the, uh, Necronomicon? This? No, this is not right. You have your own copy? I needs to compare. Can I see the Latin version of Olus Vermius? I don't read the Arabic, but I think the Latin will suffice. To say I was stunned that this hillbilly would walk in with a copy of the rare Dr. D translation of the Necronomicon carried so carelessly in a cheap valise. It was, it was in wretched condition, but appeared to be intact. So stunned that you let him see the book? I had always intended to let him see the book, and now that I had found he was no mere thrill-seeker, I was overwhelmed with curiosity as to what precisely he was expecting to find in it. Can I help you locate whatever you're looking for? I can do it. I'm very familiar with the Latin edition. Yeah. There's a passage comes on page 751 in the Doc D. Taint right. I needs to see where it came from afore. Here. I believe that would be in a section on incantations. Uh, somewhere in this area? Tis one what calls upon Yok Sothoth. There's a number of those. I can find it. But though he poured over the two volumes well over an hour, it was more confusing than helpful. There were apparently discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities in the D translation, which made the matter of determining which passage matched which far from easy. As he copied the formula, he finally settled on. I, I, I couldn't help but read over his shoulder. It was a very terrible section. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us, unseen. It contains such monstrous threats to the peace and sanity of the world. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. But everything I read was nothing to the horror I felt when Wilbur spoke once more. Mr. Armitage. I calculate I got to take this book home. There's things in it I've got to try under certain conditions that I can't get here. And it'd be a mortal sin to let a red tape rule hold me up. You must remember what I was faced with. The bent, goatish giant before me seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension. Like something only partly of mankind and linked to black gulfs of essence and entity. By their smell can men sometimes know them near. But of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many sorts, 
differing in likeness from man's truest idolon to that shape without sight or substance which is them. On top of his appearance, he was the strangest mixture of craft and guilelessness I have ever encountered. While he clearly had a deep streak of cunning, he seemed to have no concept of just how outlandish his request truly was. Let me take it along, sir, and I'll swear they won't nobody know the difference. I don't need to tell you, I'll take good care of it. Swan it want me that put this D-copy in the shape it is. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their seasons. Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly. Something in his voice was so wrong, like it was coming from a set of pipes that never belonged in a human throat. He must have seen it in my face, that I would never give in. Well, all right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you be. But his look. I didn't like his look. Without saying more, he rose and strode out of the building, stooping at each doorway. I locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust, but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. Eah, shub nigger off, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. It was that odor that finally brought back the memory of my trip to Dunwich years before. That same odor that sickened me at the Waitley farmhouse. But the Wilbur of that visit was yet a child, not the giant I had just met. So I hope to be forgiven for my mistake. Perhaps this Wilbur was the father. We can only be grateful it wasn't. Inbreeding? <laughs> Inbreeding? I doubt it. A different sort of miscegenation entirely. But what thing? What cursed, shapeless influence on or off this three-dimensional Earth might have been Wilbur Waitley's father interested me greatly. The townsfolk seem to be willing to overlook his innate oddity. Show the townsfolk Arthur Mackin's great god Pan, and they'll think it's a common Dunwich scandal. What walked the mountains that night that Wilbur was conceived? What rudderless horror fastened itself in the world in half-human flesh and blood? Taking notes? Some color. Might write it up as a story. Ah. I've gone back to the records for the precise details. He was born on Candlemas, nine months after a very significant May Eve. The talk about the queer noises in the hills reached clear to Arkham that year. Hill noises? It's all in the papers here. Newspaper articles, personal reports, a few letters I've received from interested parties. Plenty of time to have them collected all during my illness. You still look ill, Armitage. Are you sure you're up to this? If we wait until I'm well again, and at my age, that could take quite some time. We may be too late. And so this Waitley, it, this is what came back to the library, but, but that was some kind of monster. I'm sure of it. What was left of the suit, not to mention the face, was unmistakable. 
I mentioned, I think, that the watchdog barked furiously each time Waitley passed near enough for it to smell him. You made some comment. Animals often have an aversion to things that are not uh, of this world. Horses, cats, dogs, geese, geese, whatever is merely the odor or something more deeply spiritual is beyond our meager senses. They simply cannot tolerate such outsiders. Geese. I knew a woman once who bought a house, but sold it right up again after her pet cat wouldn't set foot over the threshold. But this, you're asking us to believe a lot on faith, Professor. You saw it for yourself. I saw something. But until this moment, I'd almost managed to convince myself it was some sort of waking nightmare or group hallucination. And I can't say that finding otherwise is making me particularly happy. Perhaps I haven't been clear. This is not a mere series of interesting events. An evening amongst friends. This is deadly serious. You said as much in your summons. <sighs> My dear friends... I have asked for your oath of silence on these matters, but now, since the question has been raised, I want to give you the chance to leave. Leave? Nonsense. I didn't mean to say... This is a dark business I plan to lay before you, and the fate of everything may hang on it. I must know that I can count on you for your help. Whatever you need. You think we'd skeeve off and leave you to do everything? <laughs> no way, I'm in. Ah. <sighs> I am gratified. You see, if the Necronomicon is to be believed, there are always these outside forces, entities, trying to find a way into our world. And if they ever should get in, we will be... I can't think of a strong enough word just at the moment. And you believe this is what this Wilbur wanted, to open a way? After his death, they gave me his books to look over. Not that the authorities had any inkling what was really going on. They just handed them over? I volunteered, saying that as I had spoken to the person, I might be able to decipher his writings. You see, among various other crumbling volumes, and his copy of the D, there was what appeared to be a journal. Appeared? It was written in a sort of cipher. Curiouser and curiouser. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. And so we come to the night in the library. When you say it like that, it sounds like the title of a thriller. And what novels are you reading that show that night wasn't thrilling? It was a night that I doubt even the most hardened of pulp aficionados wouldn't have blanched at. Reality is considerably more blanche-worthy than a book, and more smelly. I had received word before that night of Waitley's grotesque trip to Cambridge, and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widener Library. I must admit those efforts had been in vain, mainly due to my interference. I had taken the precaution of sending warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of the dreaded volume. Good idea. Old Brewster wrote me that Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again, as if he feared the results of being away long. There are time constraints for certain rituals and spells, aren't there? I have a strong feeling his need to get back was more visceral than a simple date on a calendar. There's no particular astronomical convergence this year that will not happen again. 
No eclipses or one-of-a-kind phenomena. Of course you looked into all that. I did. You always were a thorough researcher. Regardless of the cause, his time constraint forced him into foolhardy action. I am going to digress here for a moment regarding my prior meeting with Waitley. What, just when we're coming up on our entrance into the play? Bear with me. I will be brief. I believe it was nearly a decade ago. The precise date will be in the papers in the box there, when the government was conscripting men for the army. Oh, I recalled that. We lost some very promising scholars. Squire Sawyer Waitley. Inbreeding. I knew it. As chairman of the local draft board, had hard work finding a quota of young Dunwich men fit even to be sent to a development camp. But they're all farmers, aren't they? Farm boys are usually healthy and sturdy. Not in Dunwich. Alarmed at such signs of wholesale regional decadence, the government sent several officers and medical experts to investigate. I wasn't with that party, but went down as a result of their reports. Those are in the box, too? Yes, but one of the few men who might be deemed worthy material was Wilbur Waitley. But he had to be passed over due to his age and the resistance of his family. His age? You didn't make him sound that old. Wilbur looked like a lad in his late teens. His lips and cheeks were fuzzy, with a coarse dark down, and his voice had begun to break. Ah, and they wouldn't take him being a few months shy of sixteen years old, eh? By somewhat over a decade. Pardon? Wilbur was a child of four and a half. Their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. I... I can hardly credit it. Could it have been some kind of ruse, something to keep him from being conscripted? From what little I could glean from the locals, a reticent bunch, even the ones who dislike Wilbur's family, and that includes most of the nearby town, there was no ruse. Besides, even backwards folk would know better than to take quite so many years off when one or two might do. True enough. What's more important is that the year of Wilbur's birth had one of those convergences I spoke of earlier. Did it? A minor one. Not something the average person would ever notice, or that would make the papers. But it fell on May Eve, the May Eve of his conception. And that was the foothold. So what came of all this? I mean... Obviously, the draft didn't take Wilbur. All in all, not much. The Boston Globe and Arkham Advertiser printed flamboyant Sunday stories of young Wilbur's precociousness, his grandfather's propensity for black magic, and the weirdness of the whole region and its hill noises. You mentioned that before. What are these noises? I don't want to digress too far, but this is something that has some bearing on what might be to come. This whole mess is like a series of boxes within boxes. Each one we open shows us three more. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your garden threshold. It is said that under certain circumstances, the hills surrounding Dunwich make deep rumbling and cracking noises, noises which geologists have consistently failed to explain. What circumstances? Are, are they volcanic? There are no living volcanoes on the East Coast, not for millennia. Nothing so rational. 
No, old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of the Indians, amidst which they called forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills, and made wild orgiastic prayers that were answered by loud crackings and rumblings from the ground below. Hmm. Hill giants. In fact, deposits of skulls and bones found within circles of huge standing stones that crown several of the surrounding hills, and around the sizable table-like rock on Sentinel Hill, sustained the popular belief that such spots were once the burial places of the local natives. Perhaps the Pocomtucks. Always easy to blame indigenous peoples. Have there been archaeological digs in the area? Nothing significant. Due to the remote location, the sullen disinterest of the locals and the unclean atmosphere, the few abortive attempts that have been made have come up with conflicting evidence. Evidence? They found what appeared to be Caucasian bones in among the remains in some of the burial heaps. The establishment wrote it off as locals using a convenient place to dump their own departed ancestors, deciding it was too compromised to learn anything of value and won't fund further exploration. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. I apologize for my tendency to go off on tangents. Take it that the hills sometimes make these noises, and recall that the hill noises at the time of Wilbur's birth were so noticeable that word spread as far as Arkham. It is both a sign of the local weirdness, the strange beliefs, and oddly, a validation of the claims of Wilbur's unusually tender age. Good enough. I'm not sure I believe it, but I'll entertain the hypothesis. Good. Let's jump ahead to your entrance into the drama. As I think you suggested we do nearly half an hour ago. I'm not so long in my professorial chair that I've lost the student's knack of listening. Good, good. Now, what do you recall of that night, before the incident? I heard the dogs. I as well. <sighs> if there was time, we might do well to procure a couple of good hunting dogs. But I have a sense that we are already on borrowed time. Why hash over that night? We were all there. It may help us to, I, I hope, identify what precisely we're dealing with. Point. We were all woken up by the dogs. They kicked up a wicked row. Good. Dogs, noted. You kept everyone else out, Armitage. Didn't see any but you two, who I thought I could trust to keep your heads. <laughs> yeah, trust us to face a monster of some sort. I wasn't certain. That's a dubious compliment at best. Uh, keep going. There was also the burglar alarm. We came into the library to find the dogs going at a thing. I heard a scream. At least I guess that's the best name you could give it. Certainly didn't sound the least bit human. Human? No. There rang out a scream that roused half the sleepers of Arkham and halted their dreams ever afterwards. Such a scream as could come from no being born of Earth or wholly of Earth. It would be trite and not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it. But one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with the common life forms of this planet. I think there were birds, too. Whippoorwills. I remember thinking how odd it was that they would be out in the middle of the night. There's something mythological described to whippoorwills, isn't there? We'll come back to the whippoorwills. There was also a stench. Yes, it was terrible. So awful that I was barely able to force my fingers to turn the light switch. I'm 
Sure, I shrieked. I wholly lost consciousness for a moment. Tara strikes each man differently, and there, among overturned chairs and wild disorder... There were bits of clothing and shoe leather all over the floor. The dog had really danced the Tarantella on this... thing. There lay... The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow acre, and tarry stickiness was almost nine feet tall, and the dog had torn off all the clothing and some of the skin. It twitched silently and spasmodically while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside. Oh, I recall. It wasn't quite dead. But nearly there. No saving it, even if we could have brought ourselves to touch it. I would say that apart from the relatively manlike head and hands, there was very little about Wilbur that was human. I spotted a revolver. Later discovered it was jammed. Surprised it didn't explode in his... its... hand. The legs were vaguely goat-like, curved and pelted with dark fur. But those weren't hooves it had for feet, cloven or otherwise. More sort of pads. The chest had a texture reminiscent of a crocodile or alligator. But the yellow and black markings reminded one more of the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, was the worst. For here all human resemblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long greenish gray tentacles with red sucking mouths protruded limply. And once it expired, it vanished. Melted, I would call it. Disintegration. Slow yet right before our eyes. Not a bit of it left by the time we'd recovered enough of our wits to try and decide what to do about it. Nothing left but stain and stench. True. That floor will never be the same. There's already talk of having the boards up and replaced. The lack of hard evidence is the primary reason I have not been able to bring myself to speak much on this to the authorities. Such a wild tale would get me nowhere. I feel the same. Oh, it would get you somewhere all right. Locked up, that's where it would get you. And this is why you two are the only ones I can confide in. There at the last, while the whippoorwill shrieked and the dog growled, it spoke. The dog? The it. Nothing in English of that I am certain, but there were some disjointed fragments from the Necronomicon, that monstrous blasphemy in quest of which the thing had perished. They trailed off into nothingness as the whippoorwill shrieked in rhythmical crescendos of unholy anticipation. You said you'd mention... Whippoorwills are psychopomps, lying in wait for the souls of the dying. At the moment of death, they try to steal away the escaping soul. And this thing? As it heaved its final breath, the shrilling of the whippoorwill suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the gathering crowd outside... I could hear a panic-struck whirring and fluttering. As if they fled in fear from the soul which they had sought for prey. And then it disintegrated. The really human element in Wilbur Whaley must have been very small indeed. Even by the time the police surgeon arrived, there was only a sticky whitish mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently Whaley had had no skull or bony skeleton, not in any true or stable sense. He had taken somewhat after his unknown father. 
While I appreciate your need to discuss this, to unburden yourself a bit and share the load, I, well... Uh, Is there something in the journal we need to know about? We can go into that in the morning. There will be plenty of time on the long drive. Drive? Excuse me? We are going to travel to Dunwich. endeth part one of the Dunwich Horror, from the classic story by H.P. Lovecraft, adapted by Julie Hoverson. In the Dunwich Horror, Professor Henry Armitage was Dave Marshall, Professor Warren Rice was Glenn Hallstrom, Dr. Francis Morgan was Lothar Tuppen, the voice of the Necronomicon is Lord Bloodraw, Wilbur Waitley was Danner Hoverson, Wizard Waitley is Charles Austin Lavinia Waitley is Julie Hoverson. Miss Ward is Elise Crawick. Mrs. Armitage is Chris Kepler. Dr. Hartwell is Chris Lackey of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Curtis Waitley is J. Spider Isaacson. Mamie Bishop is Beverly Poole. Earl Sawyer was Rick Lewis. Silas Bishop is Eli Nielsen. Joe Osborne is Renaud LaBeouf. Mrs. Corey is Robin Keyes. Mrs. Fry is Kimberly Poole of Warped Space. Luther Corey is Matthias Rebney Morgan. Widow Zebulon is Reese T.M. Sally Bishop is Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard of Gypsy Audio. Chauncey Bishop is Mike Campbell. Officer Williams is Jack Kincaid of Edict Zero and Slipgate Nine Productions. Officer O'Reilly is Michael Coleman of Tales of the Extraordinary. The other police officer is Chad Pfeiffer of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Seth Bishop and additional voices by Mark Olson and the Dunwich Townsfolk. Music for the Dunwich Horror is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. The cover art is by Julie Hoverson. The ferocious guard dogs Quinn and Spencer Dutkowski appeared courtesy of their personal sound engineer, Donna. Additional effects by Henry Howard. No whippoorwills, alive or dead, were harmed in the making of this show. Much thanks to Fred Greenhog of Radio Drama Revival. Sound and mastering was done by Julie Hoverson. Sound effects were found at soundsnap.com, sonomic.com, and onesoundfx.com. All persons, places, and events in this story were fictitious or used in a fictitious manner and are not meant to reflect any persons, places, or things, living, dead, undead, or outside our three-dimensional realm. Questions? Comments? We would love to hear from you. Contact us at 19nocturne at live.com, that's 19nocturne, or visit our website at www.19nocturneboulevard.com. This presentation is copyright 2011 to Julie Hoverson and Reality Productions, and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial license. Spread the show around, but don't try to make money off it. All right, and that was the Dunwick Horror Part 104 by Julie Hoverson's 19 uh, Nocturne Boulevard, written by H.P. Lovecraft, and starring um, Dave Marshall, the secret character there, um, is actually um, a, 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 f- a friend of mine and uh, produces some final rune shows. You may have heard him, so I was really delighted to hear him here. Um, does a great New England accent, and I think uh, Julie just did a great ensemble on this piece. If you want to hear the other episodes, at least... Two of them are available, and probably more by the time you hear this, up at 19 Nocturne Boulevard.net. 
Um, yeah, and we've got more horror for you coming next week. Uh, very, very special piece that I'm not going to tell you about until we get to it, um, as well as some uh, new broadcast works by Scott Hickey of The Gristmill uh, has sent me a CD uh, care package and we'll have all of that for you plus an extra episode bonus episode for halloween that will be out some point next week probably by the time of the halloween holiday really excited for that i think you'll enjoy it um all right um with that said um over 150 hours of audio drummer programming to keep you busy at radiodrumrevival.com we did just this week put up a link to all of our previous horror shows um something like 20 hours of them so Keep yourself entertained and spooked out. Um, latest in audio drama news, follow us on Twitter. Hit up at Radio Drama. Search Facebook for Radio Drama Revival or iTunes. Uh, again, our show comes up if you type in Radio Drama Revival. Uh, that's a wrap for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by Fred Greenhalgh, copyright of individual shows. Remains that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Southern Maine's Community Radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com. It's labor love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. Mm-hmm.